Today on the show, let's dig into our own anxiety, especially anxiety about investing. My guest is a former clinical psychologist, Dr. Alice Boys. She's an expert on this subject. In fact, she's written a whole book on it. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and today is Wednesday, February 4, 2015. You know, we are all thinking sentient human, human beings, or at least some of us think we are, and that means we come with a whole host of advantages and problems. Maybe even some of us have a few disorders or neuroses, and today let's talk about how to perhaps improve some of those things. What I think you will most like about today's guest, uh, well, one of many things you'll like about today's guest, is that although she is a former clinical psychologist, she knows what she's doing when it comes to the world of personal finance and financial planning and financial lifestyle design. She's actually, as you'll hear at the very beginning, just in about 25 seconds, she is semi, sort of semi-retired, traveling for a moment at a young age, and is quite the financial hacker extraordinaire. But she can also teach us a little bit about what to think and how to approach our own thinking process, especially with regard to investing. Enjoy. So Dr. Boys, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate you being with me today. Hello. I've been looking forward to this since you emailed me as a listener and said, hey, Joshua, you know, I might be able to provide some input on the psychological aspects. And the, I guess, I mean, you would have far more experience than I, but the longer I walk around on this planet, the more I realize what a dramatic impact our psychology and understanding of our own psychology has on just basically everything we do. Everything we do. It's hard to get away from, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a sort of a major bonus to have done all this training in psychology for career purposes, and then be able to use it personally. And, and there's so many different ways that I that I use it now. There's actually in the financial business. There's a massive move uh, to integrate more of the uh, research and more of the of I guess the research that people like you I know you're a former clinical psychologist and there are a lot of people who there's a major developing field and fairly developed probably at, at this point called behavioral finance and I, I actually love what um, one guy in that field says he says that uh, here's to the death of behavioral finance, meaning that there is no such thing as a special brand of finance. It's just finance, and it's all driven by behavior. And the more we start to understand the, the, the things that influence how we approach, I think we can make, uh, we can make a lot of progress. Uh, but I'd like to start, if you'd be willing, I know that you, in your bio, you said that you were a former clinical psychologist, and you're not currently practicing. How did you figure out how to get out of the business? We're, that's the a, that's a type of topic that we're very interested in around here. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that I ended up finding your uh, podcast was through the um, Mr. Money Mustache uh, blog um, and um, noticing that you're having some guests on um, who post on that, those forums. And what happened for us is my um, – my spouse had a had a year off, got a year off from work, where she was able to take a year out to travel with uh, with the um, comfort of knowing that she could go back to her job, um, you know, after that year. And so we started traveling, and during that time, I got my uh, book contract, um, and we basically at some point realized that we weren't going backwards with our finances at all. That we that the kind of small location independent income streams that we had uh, and the fact that we were renting out a house back in New Zealand mm -hmm. meant that we were sort of more than covering our costs and that we actually didn't need to go back to work after that um, after that first year. That's so cool. How, how long have you been traveling now? Uh, so we left we left New Zealand at the beginning of May 2013 um, and so 
my spouse is a medical doctor and doesn't mm-hmm. want to kind of give up her, uh, doesn't want to get too out of touch with her skills. So um, she's just been back in New Zealand for um, for three months practicing. Um, and so that's kind of the plan from, from here on in is to sort of to, to not work for the bulk of the year um, and uh, to, uh, well, to have these small income streams coming in through the bulk of the year, but then for her to sort of keep her hand in with her, with her work. How is she able to do, how is she able to work in medicine for only three months of the year and still keep connected? Yeah, it's kind of tricky. So she still does all her um, continuing competence stuff um, throughout the year. And she has, um, you know, various things that she needs to do. Um, And, of course, none of those systems are set up for someone that only wants to work uh, for for part of the year. So actually figuring all of that stuff out was quite complicated. Uh, But we we did it. Okay, so, but it wasn't... You're saying that she's back working in order just to do the bare minimum. It's not like she has she's able to find a contract for three months. Uh, she's just going to make sure she stays current. Is she volunteering or is she actually getting paid? Uh, she's a she's a GP, so she's okay. a locum she's a locum G, GP. So she's working um, like uh, either for a couple of weeks or a month in different different practices. So it's actually quite. Uh, uh, it's quite convenient from that perspective that she can pick up um, a few weeks of work or a month of work when, when other GPs want to go on vacation. So right. it works. It works well for that. Actually. Okay, that that's what that's exactly what I was asking is because that was what I was imagining. If somebody who is uh, a general practitioner, you know, if you if you if a doctor wants to go on vacation and you've got your client base, same thing for a financial advisor. <laughs> if you want to go on vacation, and you've got your client base. You got to figure out how to serve your clients while you're gone. And the trouble, I mean, it's easier as a financial advisor simply because a you can do some work virtually and b you can schedule most things. But if you're a physician and you have a, a class of patients. I mean, you got to make sure they're squared away. So very cool. That's a, that's a really neat, I guess, career design. And you and she are planning to do that long-term? Uh, we have a, a five-year plan at the moment. So we, the, the plan is to, to try out what we're doing for, mm-hmm. for five years and then, and then reevaluate things after that point. So, and as I said, we're already, um, you know, we're, we're all, I guess, almost two years into that five years. Very cool. So let's get to the meat. Uh, I won't. I just. I'm always fascinated at people who are taking some of the ideas and the principles and then figuring out how to apply apply them in their own life. And one of them that I think is powerful is just simply taking shorter distributed, you know, distributed retirement, <laughs> or just pulling back a little bit, working in more of a ebb and flow type of arrangement than trying to work your whole life like crazy and then retire exhausted when you're too old to do anything fun. <laughs> yeah, and it's completely fascinating. And there are just so many different ways to go about it. I, I, I love hearing that other people's stories as well. You're coming out with a book, and it's entitled mm-hmm. The Anxiety Toolkit, uh, Strategies mm-hmm. for Fine-Tuning Your Mind and Moving Past Your Stuck Points. And you have some experience with applying that to finance and to investing. I'd love you to start by just sharing with us where would you begin? If I'm nervous, if I have anxiety over the topics of money and investing, where would you begin in counseling somebody through that? Yeah, so I mean, this isn't something that I work have worked with clients about. So the types of problems that clients would come um, to see me for would be would you know wouldn't be this. But basically, what I've found is that so you know so many of the same principles apply to um, apply to investing, and uh, and and you know my spouse and I have had to get over. Uh, we're both kind of anxiety prone and we've had to figure out ways to get over that fear of investing um and there are so many different ways that the same concepts apply um in the in the investing space um you know in terms of looking at the different thinking biases and stuff that that uh trouble people with anxiety in different areas of their life that also mean that they can hold back from uh, from investing in, in effective ways or could hold back from investing at all, like just never get started. What, is it? Why are people anxious? Is it, is it fear of what they don't know? Is it, 
mean, what would be some of the reasons why people are anxious in the first place, and then what do you do to help them? Yeah, so a lot of it is uh, is just is people's temperament is that they ha- is um, so you know the the things that I'm talking about are kind of aimed at people who have a more more anxiety prone prone temperament. Um, so one of the things is is that just all, you know virtually all of us um, find losses. Uh, really aversive so losing a dollar feels uh equivalently worse um than than gaining a dollar feels good so we all tend to be like that and for anxious people that um that tends to be even more pronounced so people with anxiety have tend to be what they call prevention focused which means that they are uh naturally uh, mostly focus on wanting to avoid things going wrong and wanting to avoid making mistakes as opposed to someone who's promotion focused who is more focused on reaching out for new opportunities and reaching out for new rewards and isn't as concerned with avoiding mistakes and things going wrong so when someone has that kind of natural focus and that natural style it can make it really hard to get started with investing I want to ask you, throughout the course of this interview, I'm going to ask you some, just some about some opinions that I have. And I don't know if they're true or not, but I'm interested, since you're more familiar with the actual literature and the actual research, I'm interested just to see if you say I'm right or I'm wrong or, or set me straight. Is there such a thing as an anxiety-prone temperament? And, and what I mean is I feel like that was, that's probably me. I don't, I don't know what the triggers that a professional would look for, but I remember just being so nervous and scared about basically anything in life. I'll give you one example. I do a podcast now, and so my show is heard by a lot of people, and I'm more comfortable with that now. But when I was in high school, I remember that I specifically didn't want to be either valedictorian or salutatorian of my class because I would have to give a speech. Mm-hmm. And I had a sister who was valedictorian. I had two brothers that were, I think both of them were salutatorians of their class. And I had been to enough high school graduation speeches. That, and I knew if I was valedictorian or salutatorian, I wouldn't, I, had, I, uh, I would have to give a speech. Thankfully, I had stiff competition and I graduated, I think, number four or five. So I don't even know if I could have or would have done it. But I know that I was just so nervous about the idea of speaking. So is that not anxiety? And so, but yet I've overcome it? Or is there something that, am I not anxiety prone? Or are there other people who have something that I don't have? Yeah, that's, that's very typical for someone that's anxiety prone. So yeah, so it, it, it is helpful to think of it as a, as a temperament factor. Um, and the difference between an anxiety disorder and being anxiety prone is basically the definition of having a disorder is that the problem has to be distressing and or impairing to you. So if, it, if you Just are... Distressing and or what? Im- impairing. Okay. I don't know. Is that a clinical word? Impairing? Uh, uh, it's accent. Um, I-M-P-A... Oh, impairing. Sorry, yeah. I got an accent. There we go. <laughs> Forgive me. My ear is not quite tuned <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> yeah, some words are difficult yeah, for, for me to, to say in an American quote-unquote American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've ruined the English language. So, okay, so you, that's, the, that's, the, that's the differentiation then, just because, between somebody who actually has a clinical disorder versus something that's just a, maybe a more normal uh, part of life. Yeah, so I, like personally, I'm incredibly anxiety-prone, um, but it doesn't get in the way of my life in, in any way at all anymore. Um, so... Um, and, we, and when you get to that point with, with your anxiety, um, it's you know it starts to feel a lot less um, a, a lot. It's a lot easier to, to identify as someone who's anxiety prone mm-hmm. when you when you overcome it and it doesn't cause you any problems. What about mistake avoidance? That was what you just mentioned. That you know we have some of us are very prone to just want to avoid the mistake versus uh, being focused on 
promotion. I have a theory about that, and I don't know if it's total bunk or not, but I think that's probably learned, and it's probably learned due to schooling. Because I don't know, I mean, I look at my son, I have a, he's almost one and a half. He doesn't care a bit about making mistakes. He just tries and tries and tries and tries, and he fails and he tries and he fails and he tra- tries. But I look at myself over time, you know, through the schooling process of constantly be told, you know, this was bad, this was wrong, and being overcorrected academically. And I wonder if that's not learned. Do you think it's learned or do you think that that's more of an inherent trait? I think it's a bit of both. I think a lot of it is inherent. And, you know, some of the reasons why it doesn't show up till later would just be, you know, in terms of brain development that we don't, um, that some of those, that that tendency to be self-conscious doesn't develop um, till people in people's brains until they're a wee, wee bit older. So mm-hmm. that's sometimes why you're not seeing it in younger um, in younger children. Um, that tendency to be um, concerned with how others perceive you maybe doesn't uh, develop till later. So it's a bit of a it's you know it certainly learning can play a part, but there's also a big um, temperament factor which is why it's important for people to know how to kind of work with their own temperament and to understand that really well um, so that it doesn't cause them any problems and so that you can use it to your advantage. How would you start to understand what your actual temperament is? Uh, well, I have, a big, I have a big chapter in my book um, Nice. Uh, I like the plug. Very nice. Um, (laughs) So, you know, for people that are anxiety prone um, to kind of understand that. But there are, um, you know, it's just, I guess, just from from reading around um, different, um, um, from, you know, sometimes it's not the most useful thing to understand. uh, Well, there are a few, there are a few different aspects of temperament that sometimes people find particularly easy to understand, particularly useful to understand, but you've kind of got to, um, like, you know, just Googling temperament factors or that kind of thing won't, um, often won't be that useful for people. So, you know, some of the different things that, that, that might be useful, um, would be more things like, um, like when it, uh, you know, one point that I wanted to touch on was this idea of people that have have a fixed mindset versus a fluid mindset. What do you so, mean by that? So learning whether you're somebody that is, um, where you tend to see your capacities as fixed, you tend to see that, you know, that you're not good at math or you're not good at this, that and the other thing, but you are good at these other stuff. And that those things are just kind of inherent traits, you know, versus somebody that sees themselves as being able to improve their capacities through the through effective kinds of practice. So, like that's something that's kind of useful to people, like learning, you know, do I tend to have a fixed mindset about things or do I have a fluid mindset? Um, so, sort of learning about um, how you are how your temperament actually influences your thinking style mm-hmm. um, is kind of more useful sometimes than learning just stri- straight about temperament itself. Like some of the, the temperament factors are things like how easy is it for you to adapt to change? So that's something that people, um, that's, that can be quite useful for people to learn about. So, um, um, you know, are you someone that just reacts negatively or has a big kind of internal reaction to any suggestion about changing plans or doing or doing something new or you know doesn't like surprises and kind of naturally has a negative reaction or feels really stirred up um, when you're out of routine? Um, so that's a temperament factor that pe- that can be quite useful for people to understand. But generally, people want to kind of learn more about how their about their thinking style um, more so than just this, this, their straight temperament. Like it's not that useful just to know whether you're an introvert or an extrovert sometimes um, versus, you know, how that influences the way that you think and the way that you act. Do you mean by thinking style, do you mean learning style? Like uh, verbal learner, uh, kinesthetic learner, visual learner, auditory learner, that type of thing? Or do you mean something different? Yeah, I mean something different. I mean stuff like um, whether you've got that promotion focus or the or a prevention focus, like whether you're someone that is 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 super attuned to avoiding mistakes and losses, um, or whether you're someone that's got a, a whether you're someone that tends to um, uh, 
think about have have negative expectations of of how things are going to work out. So some so um, you know some people just automatically assume that they're going to try something and it's not going to work. And learning to balance out those thoughts so that you also think about the um, so that you also think about the positives. Um, or if you're someone that's kind of uh, doesn't think about those negatives as much, like learning how you can kind of train yourself to do that if that's not your natural thinking style. Focusing on the loss, uh, on the promotion focus or the prevention focus. So I'm interested. I don't have any idea what where I would fall on that scale myself. I've never done that introspection or taken any tests. How, what would you ask me to, fig- to help me figure out whether I'm more prevention-focused or promotion-focused? Yeah, so um, I should say that, that one of the researchers who's done some really great work around this is, is a woman called Heidi Grant Halverson. Okay. So if people Google her, um, she's got a bunch of like Harvard Business Review articles and things. If people are interested in that topic, they can kind of look there. But one of the questions that you can use is to... Um, is to to look back at your regrets and ask and and if I said well like kind of what's your biggest regret and if your biggest regret is something that you wish you'd done um, but didn't do you're probably more provo- promotion focused if your biggest regret is something um, where you kind of regret making a mistake you're probably more prevention focused but it's more com- it's more complicated than that and the 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 co- really complicating factor is that some people can be high in both, so you can be high in prom- you can be both high in promotion and in prevention focus, and those people tend to have a particularly hard time because they tend to like have this real conflict with conflict between their accelerator and their brakes. So it can you know if you're high in both, it can be um, really useful to understand what's you know what's going on for you. Interesting. That, that does help. Uh, I mean, just to that question, if that's a good starting question, that does help because I'm certainly, uh, I mean, even when I started Radical Personal Finance, it was, it was, I, was I'm, I just got to the point where I was more scared of regretting by not doing it than I was of doing it and failing. I was like, well, whatever. So I do it and fail. You know, people fail at things all the time. Big deal. You know, I've worked with enough rich people who've been bankrupt that, you know, I can get through that. But you know, if I continued doing what I was comfortable with and staying in my comfort zone and missed out on something that I saw that needed to be done, then that was what I feared and what was one of the things that pushed me over uh, over the decision. Yeah, and what you, you know, one of the things that you said there was really key, this idea that you could cope with something that, so you're imagining, you know, a, a, a negative scenario. So, you know, for so somebody's big fear might be going bankrupt or something like that. And if people can imagine themselves actually being able to cope if that horrible thing happens, like obviously they're going to do everything that they can and not make silly, you know, try and avoid silly decisions that so they're not going to end up in that um, position. But it's really important for people to, to, to actually think through how they would cope if that worst fear happened. Like, you know, so, so for whatever your fear might have been for starting the podcast um you know whether it was nobody listening or um getting really negative comments or whatever it is like so people need to identify what their worst fear is and then actually think through how they would cope with that so people that are really high worriers people who have worry disorders avoid doing that they avoid actually thinking about how they would cope if their fears eventuated interesting I think I had a bit of a <laughs> I had a bit of a an advantage over probably anybody else in this regard because I bet you when I started financial planning when I was younger I thought there was a I had the impression that there was a certain thing that I needed to do and I think I probably would have been more on the prevention side meaning I went to college because I needed you know I felt like that was what I should do I started putting money in my retirement accounts because that was what I thought I should do and I had read all these charts about the importance of compound interest starting early and so I wanted to make sure I didn't miss out and I wanted to make sure that I was doing what I was supposed to do but then as I started doing financial planning I met with 
you know, over a thousand people from all different walks of life. And I recognized that even if somebody started at 45 and was totally broke, their life wasn't over. And here I was at, uh, in my early 20s thinking my life would be over if I was 45 and not rich. And here's someone just getting started uh, again on their financial plan or rebuilding their fortune or trying to figure things out. They lost it all. And I realized that it was, it was okay not to, I guess, be perfect <laughs> from an early age. And it really affected my thinking over time. Uh, but I had the luxury of being exposed to so many people, some of whom were winning, some of whom were not, you know, currently experiencing great abundance on all, all different parts of the scale. And that helped me to change my, uh, my focus. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the, you know, that for me as well, that's kind of been a, a hugely helpful life lesson is to realize that the, the people are, who are really successful they often have just succeeded at a like really big at a handful of things. Right. So you know you look at people that are successful and they'll have tons of of things that that flopped. You know that might might have either been negative or might have just there might have just been like non reward. You know they started something and it you know it didn't have any catastrophic uh, consequences, but it just it just was a bit of a non starter. Mm-hmm. But but most but if you look at most successful people, they have heaps of things like that, um, and you know maybe just a handful of things that actually worked out. So how could we teach people? I know you're probably not supposed to say that one is more positive than another, but to me, it would seem like it's more useful to be promotion focused than prevention focused. Can we teach people to be that way? It's it's useful to have a balance. Like it's useful to be able to kind of switch your thinking um just like it's it, you know it's useful to be able to switch between optimistic thinking and pessimistic thinking rather than than only have kind of one train of thought it's useful to, to hold those things in balance so um there are you know there are a lot of ways where it's useful to be um uh, prevention focused you know it's really useful to be prevention focused you know things like getting you know, getting car insurance or health insurance or those kinds of things where that's super important but um, it's important not to you know just not to fall too heavily on on one side of the spectrum that's true uh, that makes a lot of sense because it is certainly you know as a financial planner I've learned to be optimistic and focus on the good and it's funny I try to it's all, yeah this very interesting relationship i mean you would maybe i don't know maybe it's something like you experienced when you were uh, in in private practice but where you are one, on one hand motivating and inspiring and trying to hold a vision of what can be in front of your client and on the other hand you're trying to pick all kinds of holes in the plan and then make them slightly uncomfortable with you know well if you don't cover this if you don't like you said if you don't buy car insurance if you don't buy life insurance if you don't diversify your portfolio then doom and destruction <laughs> could be coming your way <laughs> so this this strange uh, balance of the two yeah it is a strange balance sometimes, but it is a you know, and it's kind of like an ongoing project of trying to trying to get that balance um, into get that balance right or as right as you possibly can. With regard to investing, one of the things that we in the financial business struggle over is how to help our clients have more confidence with their investing decisions. Mm-hmm. And we, we do these investment profile questionnaires because also when you are an investment advisor, and I'm not anymore, but I, I was, you ha- it's a tremendous responsibility to help somebody choose a portfolio. And so you know, that's why we have the, the you know, people make fun of them, but the investor profile questionnaires that, that we've developed to try to understand how a person um, thinks. And the trouble is that we usually have to be more defensive than offensive. We have to be more loss prevention focused rather than ultimate gain focused. And the reason is because clients feel the loss far more heavily than they do the gain. And so mm-hmm. in essence, the investment profile questionnaire, we can almost never go more, let's just stick with aggressive as a, as a word, even though it's not, a very great, it's not a very great descriptor of what you're actually doing in a portfolio, but we can almost never go more aggressive than how a client answers these questions because we have to have something external to help us not 
apply our comfort level with investing onto a client's comfort level. But I've mm-hmm. always tried to figure out how do I help a client to become more comfortable with investing so that they can reap some of the greater rewards. Do you have mm-hmm. any tools or strategies or tips that would help? Yeah, so so one of the one of the things is just kind of coming back to that idea of a fixed versus fluid mindset that I uh, talked about earlier. So a lot of people had this idea, I'm not good at investing and I can't get good at it. Like it's this fixed thing that they're not good at. And I mean, one of the things is to, is to think about the ways that you're, that you're actually um, sort of the Wizard of Oz principle. Like, like how did you have that all along? Like in what ways are you good at investing already that you might not even be recognizing as, a, as investing? So like, you know, even things as, in, as, as, you know, as simple as, things like you invest in ingredients to cook meals or you invest in you know buying a car or a bike that gets to that gets you to work that allows you to generate income so looking at the different looking at investing more holistically rather than just um, in terms of are you good at plunking money in the stock market like looking at the different you know and so so the person can start to see the ways that they might actually already be comfortable with investing in some spheres of their life um, and also the person can, uh, you know, can start thinking about return on investment and, in, in, in different kinds of ways, like thinking about that in a, a really flexible way. So it might be something like, um, you know, investing in, in, in LED light bulbs in your, in your house and, and actually running the numbers and seeing the return on investment of, of, of that and which, you know, which light you know, what are your most frequently used lights and how long do you plan to stay in your home and those kinds of things. Um, or things like investing time and like, you know, your time and your labor into a project that's going to generate return. It might be something like, um, it might be something like learning about travel hacking and applying for credit cards that have sign up bonuses and things like that. Or, um, like one uh, sort of random thing that I do is I buy like gift cards online at a discount. So like, and I don't go to um, Home Depot and just use my credit card. I buy, I go online and buy like a Home Depot gift card that's selling at like you know nine or ten percent off because I see that as you know if it's spending I was definitely going to do it's a return on it's a return on investment. So just kind of starting to think about um, about investing more. Uh, more holistically and learning that you can you know you can develop competence and confidence through you know all of those different kinds of methods as well um, the big thing is is really avoidance so you know you mentioned like in your example about the, you know, the valedictorian so one of the the like really striking uh, issues with um, for anxious people is this avoidance coping. So, and the hard, the harder that, you, uh, the longer that you avoid something, the harder it becomes to do it. So the other, the, you know, the other big thing in terms of developing confidence is this idea that you, that you develop confidence and competence from doing that. You don't kind of, um, you, it, the idea is not to wait until you feel confident to do something, the idea is that you're going to gain confidence from doing it. So that your behavior influences your thoughts and feelings. Um, and in some ways that link from behavior to thoughts and feelings is, is even stronger than the influence of, of thoughts and feelings on behavior. If that is not too hard to imagine. It is. I mean, it's, it's not too hard to imagine it. It's useful. One of the things I love about podcasting as a medium is I can go back and many podcasters or even writers will often leave their original episodes or their original articles or their original essays live. And so you can go back and you can see what did they sound like when they first sat down in front of a microphone. <laughs> and I've often wished, I don't know who is uh, a, a great and famous radio announcer in New Zealand, but uh, in the U.S. I often think of someone like Rush Limbaugh has the most widely listened to radio show. And I often wish I could go back and hear you know, his first shows from the 80s to see what he sounded like. Because <laughs> it was probably the most awful, uh, you know, most awful unpolished thing ever. 
But that gives me hope and confidence that just by doing more, then I can by doing I can I can uh, get better. And and I've noticed this. One of the things in financial planning where where I've seen this is I've never seen a successful I've never seen a person start in the financial services business and wind up being financially successful at it who wasn't willing just to go out and do stuff and just to learn learn through doing. Uh, mm-hmm. rather than spend all kinds of time trying to think about how do I get it better. There is, it is important to think about things, but some things you got to learn by doing. And uh, that's one of the things, character qualities I wish to teach others and model. Just get in and roll your sleeves up and you're going to learn. And then the, you can deal with, deal with things as it goes along. Is that, that's along the lines of what you're talking about, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So, I mean, one of the hard things with investing is that, you know, there's, there's, you know, not even Warren Buffett does investing perfectly. So if, you know, if you're sort of like anxious and a perfectionist, you're often, you know, you often find people are just doing like a ton of research or either they, they do a ton of research and don't take any action or they just completely give up because they feel like they're never going to be able to figure out how to do it perfectly. Um, and it is just one of those areas where there is no, you know, there is no perfectly. We all, you know, we all wish that we could, you know, buy at the the absolute bottom of the market and sell at the absolute top, but that just isn't you know that isn't going to happen. So it is um, something that if you've got a tendency to react to things that you can't do perfectly right out of the gate by kind of doing nothing, then you're going to end up doing you know nothing or doing things that are suboptimal. I'll give two other examples from investing. I think people often have fear, <clears throat> excuse me, often have fear of investing in something new. For example, a new type of investing. And one example would be something like real estate. I really respect and admire two writers on real estate, John Reed and John Schaub. And a big thing they focus on, both of them in their books, is here's a little bit of theory. Here's what you need to know. Now, you must commit within X you know, number of months that you are going to locate and buy your first property. Because of all the real estate investors I know here locally that I've spoken with who've bought and sold dozens, if not hundreds of properties, it all started with just getting over the fear in the first one. And it probably wasn't a very good deal. Mm. Uh, but you've got to get over the fear of, okay, I'm not going to get a great, a great deal and recognize I'm just going to get it done. And once yeah. I've gone through it once the first time, even if I lose money, at least I learned and I got over the fear. I remember another example in my own life. When I was younger, I was schooled in the and in, basically indoctrinated in the popular finance uh, approach that the only suitable asset you know class for people to invest in was stocks and bonds, and and maybe some real estate. And then I started reading about things like gold, things like uh, just alternative uh, you know hedge funds, different things, and I realized that I was scared to go and buy uh, a gold to buy gold coins. And so I remember forcing myself to say, Joshua, this is stupid. This, you are being an intellectual imbecile if you're just sitting here because you're scared to do something that you've been indoctrinated against. And so I forced myself to find a gold dealer, walk in, plunk down my money and buy a one-tenth ounce gold coin. And I walked out and I'm like, wow, I survived. <laughs> and just breaking that barrier to say, all right, I've made it. I've, I'm now one of those weird people who owns a gold coin. Now, I can look at this a little bit more rationally and try to understand how this market is moving as compared to this other market, and I can gain control. So I've had to force myself to do it in the topic of investing. Yeah, and and you, the way that you take in and process information is so different once you once you're in the doing stage of something versus the the just thinking about its its stage. Like it, it really, you know, the best way to accelerate your thoughts is to to start acting. Um, the best way to have new thoughts and new creativity and you know and all of that is to start taking some some action if you've been sitting on the sidelines for, for too long and I'm definitely not um, someone that believes in the idea that you should you know kind of make mis- you should have negative experiences on purpose like that they're somehow you know character building or or you know I, I do think that you should do everything that you can to you know to try and make a profit on that first house that you buy right, and right. to try to try you know to try and um you know especially in terms of catastrophes to try and and not have those happen and do you know take sensible steps and that kind of thing but um yeah it's there's something incredibly liberating about um about making a mistake and realizing that um or having a negative outcome to something 
and realizing that you that you coped with it and that it um you know, one of the things uh, that happened to me was that I was, you know, beginning into travel hacking quite a lot um, lately, um, and I, I applied for a credit card, and they and they declined me, and it was the most liberating thing ever. I've never been declined. I've never in my whole <laughs> life paid a cent. I'm one of those people that's never, never in my whole life paid a cent of interest on a credit card. Mm-hmm. So that you know, like I've no history of ever being declined for a financial uh, product. But, you know, obviously being uh, sort of new to the U.S. that I um, you know, have a pretty limited history here. But it was like, OK, so that it was like finding the limit. I was like, OK, that's the limit of what I can of what I can do here. I've just hit the limit. It was so liberating to have that happen. You know, it was embarrassing, like for the first <laughs> for a day, I felt embarrassed. But then I felt completely liberated by it. That's such a such a great example, and it's so funny how we take these things so seriously. Uh, that fear of getting declined for a credit card, or that fear of a transaction not going through. I can remember recently I signed up for uh, my wife and I. She doesn't like big box stores, but finally I convinced her. I said, "Listen, let's try it." So we signed up for Sam's Club, and we went down. and I needed needed to shop. Uh, we needed we needed to buy some stuff. So we signed up for Sam's Club, and I went there. It was was our inaugural purchase. And the thing with Sam's Club, they don't accept credit cards. They only accept debit cards uh, or cash. And so I knew in advance that that was going to be the case. And I had made sure that there was plenty of money in the, in the primary checking account, everything good to go. And I had two carts worth of, of stuff that I was buying. And it was, a, I mean, the bill was, I think, eight or $900 or something like that. And I get there and my card is declined. And they had swiped two carts full of stuff. I mean, it had taken a long time for this to go through, and there's a big line behind me. So all of a sudden, I just start sweating bullets. Wait, I know there's money in the account. I host a financial advice podcast. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not overdrawing my account. But just this intense like wave of fear, like oh, these people are all judging me. So I tried the other card. I think the Discover card is the one they they accept. No, declined. So I'm saying, oh man, how much cash do I have in my in my wallet? And I was able to work it out. And it, since it was such a large purchase for the first time, the, for the first time at the store. The, the my debit card and credit card company had just simply blocked the transaction. Yeah. And I was able to call them and get it worked out. But man, I was literally sweating at the shame and the fear of me having to go and take my two carts that I had spent hours loading and put everything back on the shelves. <laughs> yeah, and, and new experiences, you know, that often go like that, right? You know, it was the first time that you've, that you've gone to Sam's Club and, you know, that's it's so often the You're out first of your time, element. yeah the first time you do something there's this unexpected blip with it and that's what people with um you know it's it's so there's a, you know there's a difference between trying to avoid a catastrophe trying to avoid like losing a lot of money or trying to avoid getting stuck in something that you you know some kind of bad scheme that you can't get out of you should work really hard to avoid catastrophes but those kinds of negative experiences that are really just emotional they're really just a bit embarrassing or a bit awkward so you know the 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 people that that do well are the people that are willing to tolerate those feelings so there's a big kind of literature uh or big sort of research literature around the fact that that people that um people are a lot more successful in their lives if they're able to tolerate a degree of discomfort um, you know exactly the kind of example that you're talking about. Do you think is that something that can be intentionally trained? That we can intentionally train ourselves to be comfortable with discomfort? Yeah, yeah. So it's much absolutely, and it's much more about um, like learning to, as you just as you say, learning to be comfortable with discomfort than it is trying to eliminate all sources of discomfort from your life. Like there's you know been a big shift in the um, in in psychology towards uh, that idea that um, that that comfort with discomfort is just a hugely valuable psychological skill, or willingness to tolerate discomfort is hugely is hugely valuable. I mean, you think about all the things that people would avoid if they weren't willing to. So I know a lot of people that really avoid the phone. So that they would, they really don't want to ring customer service. You know, they don't want to ring around and get different quotes for their insurance, or they don't want to 
um, have different tradespeople come over and get you know quotes from three three tradespeople for a job that they need done in their home, or um, that they they'll just avoid those things. And you can just see how the people that are willing to go through those experiences where they feel a bit awkward, like asking you know asking for a raise or negotiating a salary or those kinds of things, like the cumulative effects of of being willing to to tolerate that small moment of discomfort. Just like over a lifetime, they just le- they leave the person so much better off. Yeah, as a parent, I think about this as one of the most valuable things I can do for my kids, and I'm thankful that my parents did it for me. When we grew up, uh, we grew up camping all around the U.S., and the thing I love about camping is it forces you into just these awful circumstances sometimes, and you're just stuck in the car, and it's been all day, and you're driving across Kansas, and you have 400 miles to go, and if you've never driven across Kansas, someday you will, and you'll understand, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, but it's just a long day in the car, and you're sick and tired of it, and you're upset, and you're cranky, and you're grouchy, and then it's an amazing opportunity to learn to control your attitude and to not let your attitude be affected by the circumstances around you, or you get rained out, or you it's hot, or something like that. It's just, it, that was one of the tools that my parents used to, to bring discomfort into our lives, and we had a great time. I mean, there's all kinds of peak experiences as well, but the discomfort is so valuable, and I look at what a great gain we can, how, how, how well we can serve young people if we give them opportunities to be uncomfortable uh, while they're young so they can learn to control their attitude, learn to control their emotions, learn to control their feelings about it while it's, uh, you know, while they're young rather than having to be 43 years old and all of a sudden blowing up at somebody because they've treated you unkindly or because they've been short with you. Mm -hmm. Far better to learn that when you're young. Mm-hmm. For sure. So as we start to wrap up here, is is there anything else on any other ideas that you have or other thoughts that you have that would be helpful to listeners who are working to overcome and tame their anxiety? Yeah. So I mean, there are a few like just little sort of tips and tricks that people can use. Um, one of the um, you know specifically about investing. One of the things that people can find quite helpful sometimes is to write a letter from their future self back to their current self. So um, we often feel like like our future self, uh, like our, you know the, the, the self we're going to be in you know 20 or 30 years time is almost like a different person from from our current self. Um, so sometimes it feels like the consequences of either you know making good financial decisions or, or not so good ones are going to be almost experienced by someone else rather than by you just an older version of you. Right. So one so one thing people can do is like, you know, maybe write a letter back to their back to their current self from their, you know, their twenty years older version of themselves, you know, saying thanks for going through the that thanks for going through those initial um, stages where you really didn't feel like you were you knew what you were doing or thanks for going, you know, staying the course when there was that downturn in the market and you felt like pulling, you know, yanking all your money out. Um, all those kinds of things um, to try and sort of uh, bridge that gap from your current current self to your future self, so that they start feel so it starts feeling like all these good things that you're going to be doing are actually the benefits are actually going to be experienced by you at some point in the future, and not like some different, completely different person. It's a great idea. That could probably be applied to far more than just finance. Uh, that can be applied to what we eat and how we move and how we live our lives. Yeah, and I mean the other thing is, um, you know, is to I guess to make a plan. So you know, one of the things that sort of I found useful in thinking about my own like asset allocation and things was to you know to look back and actually see like if I had that allocation back in you know two thousand and eight two thousand and nine, what would have happened to my investments and like how would I have handled that and thinking about. You know, if you if what you, you want to understand what your own worry is, like is your is your concern that you're going to yank your money out of your investments if there's a if, if there's a downturn, or is your concern that you're going to maybe not yank your money out, but you're going to not keep um you're not going to keep your contrib- contributions up, or kind of looking at different scenarios of from what you know about your own behavioural patterns and your own thought patterns, what you know what you might be inclined to do. And coming up with like an actual behavioral plan for what you'd do in that situation, like 
who would you talk to? What sort of data would you look at um, before you before you did something rash? Um, you know, those those are uh, you know are those are a few options for what somebody could do. You know, it's, it's, it's being pessimistic and being somebody that, um, that, that thinks about what could go wrong is not a negative thing. That's a, you know, that's my, my natural temperament. And, you know, I used to probably feel a little bit uh, ashamed of that being my natural temperament or like people would, you know, tell me to be more, more, more relaxed or more happy go lucky or those kinds of things. And, what I've kind of learned about myself and what, you know, is true for a lot of other anxious people is that they actually feel better when they're, when they're prepared, um, for things that could go wrong. Um, and there are ways that you can do that, that are actually useful, um, versus, and there are ways that are not useful, like, you know, just doing continually doing research on a topic, but never getting to the point where you feel like your plan, like your plan is perfect enough is obviously not useful. Whereas having like a, you know, a three point plan for what you're going to do if some um, concerning thing happens is, is, a, is, a, is far more useful. I can give two practical examples from the world of financial planning of ways that I see and ways that I've learned to apply exactly what you said. You said make a plan and then make a plan for being prepared when things go wrong. On the making a plan thing, I see that as a primary foundation of a good investment strategy is to decide in advance what your course of action is going to be when circumstances happen. So whether and and this will vary depending on your you know your style of investing. So some people might be having a very active trading style of investing and they say and they're putting in place and they're saying, well, if if this company that I'm investing in, if the share price moves by this percent, that's my trigger to sell. The key is having that written down and on paper in black and white so that when you're in the midst of the emotion, you can go back and you can look at your plan. And of course, you can always change your plan, but at least force yourself to be accountable and say, I'm changing my plan because of this new information that I didn't have before. And make sure that you're not just simply changing your plan because now you're feeling the fear or the euphoria of whatever phase you are in a market cycle. And I think this will force you to understand your plan. So that would be, it could be applied by an active uh, trader, or it could be applied, let's say that somebody is following a very consistent buy and hold uh, style of investing. In this scenario, then I know that my plan is to do absolutely nothing. And I know that over time that will work out because the, over the majority of the time, my investments will increase in value and there will always be massive gut-wrenching temporary anomalies. So if I own a, a, a portfolio of index funds, then I know when the market drops by 30%, I will do nothing. And because I've thought it through ahead of time, I know I'm not going to change anything. Uh, and then if, you, if, if that makes you uncomfortable, then with that, with that thought, because some people in the audience are saying, absolutely, and some people are squirming, like, how could you ever do that? If that makes you uncomfortable, then you know you've got the wrong investment plan. You know that you're not going to be comfortable going through that, so you need a different plan that's going to suit your natural uh, personality. Um, as far as actually how to apply it, I think it can be applied on the portfolio perspective. But the powerful tool that I hear few people talk about is what I call financial planning, which is how can I put some, some planning in place so that I'm prepared if things go wrong in my investment portfolio? Example would be this. Let's assume that I have all of my invested in all of my money invested in the general you know, stock market, and it's 2008, and all of my money is there, and I lose my job, and my wife loses her job. Well, all of a sudden, and we don't have any savings, that would be a key thing. Well, all of a sudden, I'm going to be freaking out when my portfolio is down 30%, and I've lost my job. But these, are, these might be disconnected things, or they might be connected. The key is to be able to differentiate from them. So I need to think of that in advance, and I need to say, what, do I, what am I going to do if that happens? Well, it would be wise for me to have savings, have assets that aren't in market, 
if I know I'm going to be freaking out, maybe I would lower my debt burden or eliminate my debt so that I can be more comfortable in that scenario. Maybe I will make sure that my portfolio is balanced in such a way, but I'm going to think through that in advance. And then by thinking through it, I can put some planning things in place today because I'm not smart enough to know exactly when the market as a general whole made up of millions and millions of people, the collective actions of millions of people, all of whom are making their own individual decisions about when to buy and when to sell and what to do. I'm not smart enough to predict the actions of millions of people, but I can look at my life and I can plan and say, if this happens, then I need this in place. If that happens, then I need this other thing in place. And that can alleviate the anxiety of what happened, you know, ha of my, that can alleviate my anxiety if certain events happen because I've thought them through in advance and I know what I would do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, I mean, one of the points that I would make is that I, that there may not, you know, for somebody there may not be a plan. So this idea that, that, that if you feel uncomfortable, it's the wrong plan, that there are, for someone that's anxiety prone, who's very, you know, very conscious of any kinds of losses or, you know, any kinds of mistakes, they might not, there might not be any version of a plan where they feel a sense of, of comfort with, uh, with, you know, with losses. And it's, I guess, you know, thinking about, you know, what would feeling, what would feeling uncomfortable feel like? And what's the sort of, what's the level of, of, of discomfort? And what types of discomfort are you able to tolerate? Um, you know, versus trying to sort of, you know, especially the, the um, and when I say American way, but like I mean sort of the, the way the Western world is this idea that we, that we want to avoid all, all sources of discomfort. And, you know, you were saying before about the, the importance of not doing that. So there might not be a version that feels, com uh, that feels comfortable, but, sort of separating that out and thinking what's the right, you know, what are the, what are the, the right things to do regardless of how comfortable or, or uncomfortable it, it feels. And for somebody that's very anxious, that might be what they need to do because they might, if, if they, if they spend their whole time searching for something that feels comfortable, they might never ever get started because there's no perfect thing that actually makes them feel completely comfortable. And even, and people learning that like, that even, even when you're doing the right thing, there are there can be these moments of, of massive discomfort and learning sort of through experience that that's not you know that those um, that those anxiety feelings are not are some are, are often false alarms are often just about the fact that you're doing something new um, rather than them being kind of real uh, alarms telling you that you're doing the wrong thing. I see your point. It makes sense. It's hard to know where that line is, though, because I've I've turned away people, and I've simply said, "Listen, you should not be investing in publicly traded securities." Like there are some people who they can't, you know, the fact of being out of control. Entrepreneurs, as an example, many entrepreneurs thrive on this sense of control, and for them, they're just going to make bad bad decisions. And so I've often just thought, you know, you're better off investing in. This, diff this other type of thing. You're better off investing in private businesses. You're better off investing in real estate. Uh, mm -hmm. You're better off investing, but then to someone else who is comfortable with that, you're better off you know, investing in publicly traded securities. And it's, always, it's a challenge to, to figure out where that line is because I think that well, that's, <laughs> that's the whole reason why that's why it's tough, because I think that both of those things are absolutely true. There is no such thing as the elimination of risk. There's no such thing as perfect safety. Uh, it doesn't exist. But yet, we do. I think our temperament is important yeah. in how to, how to meet it, but not how to be a slave to it. Just because, you know, I'm not going to invest in this type of investment because I just don't, I'm scared of it. I don't want to learn anything about it. Well, that's probably not a useful uh, character trait. Recognize your temperament. Uh, but also recognize that you can learn something about it and you can be, you can feel more confident with education. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with what you're, what you're saying there. What I'm kind of particularly talking about is the, as the person who's very anxious and can, and there's no version that makes them feel completely comfortable. There's not starting a business. There's not investing in real estate. There's not having, you know, 
50% of their asset allocation in bonds, that all of those things make them feel nervous. So if you're one of those people where all of those things that make, make you feel nervous, you know, you, you want to go with that. You, you do, you want to find the, the, the it's that thing about them saying, you know, the best diet is the diet that you'll stick to, right? So right, it's about, right. so it is kind of working. I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying, that it's really important to understand your, um, it's, understand your temperament but also be really it's really important that if you're somebody that where nothing makes you feel comfortable um to pick something any other tips on your list or anything else that you want to mention that would be useful to the audience uh maybe uh figuring out what kind of monitoring works best for you i think is kind of an important part of uh an investing plan as well how do you mean like um, so whether uh, ch- checking in on your portfolio once a month is useful or getting email alerts when there's some kind of, uh, you know, change in the market, like setting up alerts, you know, that if, you know, the stock price drop, drops by a certain amount that, you know, and you, that's on sale and you want to buy some um, or just kind of figuring figuring that out. I think that that can be quite important that people who are anxious tend to either over monitor or under monitor. So, Kind of figuring figuring that out is important, um, and I'd also just say you know really think kind of coming back to that idea of, of thinking about this holistically, like thinking about your whole money picture really whole, um, so that you know working on the things that feel possible for you. So if um, you know if things like um, reducing expenses by you know making those customer service calls to get. Um, to get your insurance rates down or those kinds of things or asking for a raise or like doing all of those, like seeing all of those things that you do to improve your uh, money picture is sort of part of the same goal of becoming, of developing your, your confidence and, and competence in, in the money arena and that you can start, you know, wherever you feel able to start with those types of things. Yeah, the comfort level with a calculator to calculate the unit price at the store is no different than the comfort level of sitting down and calculating what you believe to be the intrinsic value of Coca-Cola. Uh, there's a few more numbers involved, but the steps are the same. And mm-hmm. so getting used to that method of thinking, I think, can, can really be a valuable uh, education. Mm-hmm. Anything else on your list? Nope, that's it. <laughs> I thank you for coming on. I love having professionals like you in the audience because it helps me to, well, I love it. I love it because I can air some of my wacky ideas and then be set straight or kind of feel good about, wow, I came to that accidentally. And, <laughs> and here is a little bit of external, external corroboration. When does your book come out? It comes out March the 3rd, so yeah, exactly a month from when we're taping this. (laughs) Okay, yeah, so we're recording on February the 3rd. This will probably go out either this week or next. Uh, So is it available now for pre-order on Amazon or anything like that? Yep, Um, so it's available in both paperback and uh, Kindle version on Amazon and will be available in all the usual places that books are sold. And go ahead and just give us a quick a quick advertisement on it as far as what's in it, what's it about, who it would be a good fit for. Yep. So it's called the Anxiety Toolkit um, and it's really practical. Um, it covers uh, rumination, so o- over, overthinking about things like, you know, when you get stuck on, um, you know, maybe you have an awkward conversation with somebody and then it sort of sticks in your mind. You find, find yourself sort of lying awake at night thinking about it or driving home in the car thinking about it. Um, it covers hesitating too long before making decisions, covers perfectionism, um, co- covers avoidance, coping. It's aimed at, at um it's, it's intended to be helpful both for people who have actual anxiety disorders, but more so people um, who have an, an anxious thinking style um, who might want to learn about their thinking and behavioral patterns a bit more. How cool that you can do your book tour while you're traveling <laughs> and work with, I, I would assume you've got kind of a book launch strategy and lining up the media. How cool that you can be on the road enjoying a location-independent lifestyle and still write and publish your book and do the publicity. What a cool world we live in. Yeah, it's a very cool world. <laughs> I know you have a website, aliceboys.com. Anywhere else that you want people to know about you? 
Yeah, the AliceBoys.com one is, is, a, is one that I had for my practice. So that's not very active at the moment. The, the, the two places that I am uh, that are, are more active are the book website, which is the anxiety toolkit com and also my blog for psychologytoday.com so I wrote my uh, I wrote a blog on my own site up until about 2012 and then all, my, all of my new articles since then are on my blog for psychologytoday.com very cool I'll make sure that those are on your uh, those are listed in the show notes Dr. Boys I appreciate you making time to come on good luck safe travels to you thank you Perhaps I shouldn't try to do therapy for myself live on the air, but hey, it's not every day you get a former clinical psychologist to talk to you, and sometimes it's nice to learn a little bit about something about yourself, isn't it? <laughs> At least I enjoy that. After all, it's one of the reasons why I do the show the way that I do it. I get to learn something. Uh, I'm not an expert in everything. I'm an expert in maybe just a couple of things, but the rest of the time, I'm just interested. And a little bit of introspection and knowing yourself, even as Dr. Boys emphasized, can be so, so useful. Uh, so thank you so much. As we go today, I'm going to read a couple of iTunes reviews. And if you enjoy the show or if you hate the show, well, you wouldn't be here at that point. But if you enjoy the show, please leave an iTunes review and make sure that you're subscribed in iTunes. That is so, so helpful. Super, super helpful when you do that. Uh, that it just helps. It helps the rankings. It helps all of that stuff. So let's go with Joe's review. He says, knowledge is power. One of the best podcast outs podcasts out there for anyone looking to learn more about personal finance. Joshua educates on topics that can have an impact on your finances and life. He knows his stuff, isn't trying to sell anything, dives deep into most topics while also being easy to listen to. Highly recommended. Thank you, Joe. I am going to sell stuff in the future. I just got to create it first. <laughs> so, and I am selling you my ideas every day. So I love, uh, I love selling and it's one of my favorite things to do. And so I am selling stuff. I just... And I don't have enough stuff to sell. Uh, let's see. Stamerk here says, fantastic podcast. Of all the personal finance podcasts, Joshua's Radical Personal Finance is the most in-depth and valuable I've come across. Just an absolute treasure trove of information and insight. Thank you so much, Joshua. I learn something new every time I listen. Thank you. I appreciate that. That means a lot. Uh, by the way, some of you who are listening in other countries, I I see your reviews. I haven't forgotten about them. What happens is I don't have a system where they automatically show up in my inbox where I keep these ones that I'm going to re read on the show, which is all the U.S.-based ones. So thank you. I saw a review from Finland, a bunch of reviews from Canada. Uh, thank you to each and every one of you who's leaving me those reviews. I really, really appreciate it. That's it. Be back with you all tomorrow. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to contact me personally, my email address is joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. You can also connect with the show on Twitter at RadicalPF and at facebook.com slash radicalpersonalfinance. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. But your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please help me by coming to the show page and commenting so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.